International media hype will suggest a serial killer is roaming the streets of Lumberton, with origins stretching in the previous unsolved disappearances, murders, and mysterious crimes. Is there truly one person responsible for these events, or something darkly complex waiting to be found? That's what we're trying to find out. Welcome to Darkwater, an investigative podcast hosted by me, Brett Andrews. And me, Nick Andrews. Because of the nature of these cases, the identities of some participants have been censored. Welcome back. Last time we covered some history behind Robinson County, North Carolina, where the crimes have taken place as well as the story of how the podcast got started. We delved into the spring 2017 discoveries of Kristen Bennett in an abandoned home and Rhonda Jones in a trash can, both in various states of decomposition. All on the same morning of April 18th, across the street from one another. There are many more details in episode one, so if you're just dropping in, be sure to go back and check that out first. It'll make a lot more sense. Rhonda's family spoke with us about her and her case. We also heard from Dr. Maurice Godwin again about his thoughts on the events. We're picking the story back up the day after the discoveries when CBS 17 reporter Nate Rogers unknowingly meets the next victim, caught in this web of whatever's going on. We think she was punished. punished. I mean, I don't comprehend stuff like this too good. I don't understand how somebody can do somebody's child, mother, niece, like that. The woman in the interview, Megan Oxendine, actually knew Rhonda Jones. Plenty of people in the community have great things to say about both of them, but other neighbors haven't been so kind. A 66-year-old owner of a nearby business who didn't want to be identified said the following. Like cockroaches, they come out at night. The police do what they can, but they can't nursemaid them. Eric Hackney, a veteran investigator for Robinson County DA's office, and Lumberton Police Captain Terry Parker called the scene grisly, one of the worst they had ever worked on in their careers. Parker has so far declined to participate in the podcast or the documentary and development. The house where Kristen was found is owned by a local attorney and was said by the police chief to be off their radar as far as the legal activities go. Chief McNeil said, we didn't have any indications whatsoever about prostitutes or drug dealers being there. We've got no record of it at the police station. In a little over a month's time, Megan, knowing the other women, would meet the same fate. She was discovered by a smell by Marks McCollum in 15. Him and his friend were playing basketball on June 3rd. They found her under shingles and branches behind another vacant home by some railroad tracks a couple blocks away from where the other murders took place. And I could see like where the hip of her body was. So that's when I got on my knees and I looked and I had seen like the hip and then my friend didn't see it. So we walked around the other way. I had moved the bush back 
And that's when he had looked and he said, bro, that's a body. Yeah, she was actually lodged between, as I understand it, the home and a cedar tree. And they had to cut down a portion of the tree just to access the crime scene. And this house is still standing and is still abandoned in Lumberton. This doesn't show up in the official reports, but neighbors have consistently reported the fact that she was nude, bound, and appeared to have a rag or some material in her mouth, as well as a head wound. She was in a defensive position as well. Dr. Maurice Godwin, a criminal investigative psychologist and forensic scientist, mentioned the idea that just because these women might not have been killed by what's considered contemporary culture's idea of a serial killer, if the same person or people are linked to these deaths, in essence, it is serial murder. See, here's the thing is, if, if, I, if I kill six girls and it's drug-related, people don't tend to think that's a serial killer, but, but it is if yeah. it's the same person. Yeah. It still is. So you got a serial killer problem on your hands. Yeah. These are not the same glamorous serial killers that you binge on your true crime television shows. Megan's mom thinks she met her in because she knew something about what happened to Kristen and Rhonda. It's something I wouldn't wish for anybody to go through. <laughs> to have their child took from them. My child came up here four weeks ago, had been attacked. I let the officers, two officers know that night. I haven't heard anything. She says the attacker cut Megan's hair, but her daughter couldn't see who it was. Oxendine says since Megan's attack, she's been waiting on a call from an investigator working the deaths of the two other women. I don't know how much she know, whether it was a little something she didn't know who had something to do with it or actually done it. So there's one thing I want to point out following that clip. Post-attack, Megan was in contact with Lumberton police detectives. In fact, they even followed up to see if she told her mom any information. But at some point, Megan became so afraid of what she knew, or perhaps afraid of them, that she actually fled their company, jumped out of a car she was in with them. And then, eventually, she ended up where she did. Initially, it was reported that she was attacked by one person, or it was at least phrased that way. And then, in a later Inside Edition article, we hear about an attack by a group of people. That's going to be an important distinction as we get into some theories coming up. Megan was last seen in late May, and she was found in early June. And eastern North Carolina in the summer is very hot and very humid, which in turn speeds up the rate of decomposition. And she was found so decomposed that toxicology had to use pelvic fluid to try to determine the cause of death, which they couldn't find one. She had traces of cocaine, morphine, and alcohol in her system. But that can't be definitively attributed to her death, just like the others. And potentially, as I understand it, certain levels of ethanol can just be a byproduct of decomposition. Especially in mid-June in eastern North Carolina. And we should also mention here that they can't rule out that it's attributed to drugs. They also can't rule out asphyxiation. Basically, these women being dumped during a humid North Carolina spring and summer without people looking for them soon enough, it seems like they never stood a chance to have their cause of death revealed even if people feel very sure about what happened to them. According to a recent article from University of California, Davis, on decomposition, 
Soil temperature and moisture content are very important factors affecting decomposition rates. At favorable moisture conditions, increase in temperature results in exponential increase in decomposition rates. And that's a constant theme that we discovered amongst all the toxicology and autopsies was that all the bodies were so decomposed that the cause of death couldn't be determined. I also want to point out the attack happened weeks prior to the discovery of her body, so it really wasn't that far from what happened initially to Kristen and Rhonda. So you have to wonder if they just missed her the first time and came back. And she was found with some sort of material in her mouth. And you have to wonder if that's some type of symbolism. Was this to silence her to carry out the deed? Or is it symbolism for her speaking? Or is it both? But also, there could be one more reason. We know for a fact from later Inside Edition reporting that Megan was actually inside the house at the time Kristen was found. And if you recall, Johnny Ray Barnes from episode one, he was in the home. He told Lumberton police he was there to smoke crack. The FBI says Megan isn't the person that reported the crime, so that aligns with it being Johnny Ray Barnes. But was it for speaking? Was it for being in the home as well? It seems like those things are starting to line up. And many neighbors are starting to think the worst. It definitely, like, makes me wonder if there's, like, a serial killer or something, or... I don't know. But that's really close to home. The following is the medical examiner preliminary summary of circumstances surrounding death for Megan Oxendine. The decedent's decomposed remains were discovered outside an abandoned residence near railroad tracks with apparent overgrowth of grass and weeds in the area. The body was partially concealed by a cedar tree, covered with tree branches and shingles. Abundant fly activity was noted, with the unclad, clearly decomposed remains. A foul odor emanating from this area had apparently been noted by individuals at a neighboring residence over several days. Preliminary investigation raised concern for suspicious circumstances underlying the death, particularly in the setting of the discovery of two other adult females deceased in the area a couple of months earlier under uncertain circumstances. The decedent had reportedly went missing over a week earlier. Here are some important things to note for Megan's autopsy, as well as the medical examiner preliminary summary of circumstances surrounding death. While post-mortem examination revealed no demonstrable contributory natural disease or physical injury, subtle findings, particularly in the context of a putative asphyxial insult potentially contributing to the demise, may be difficult to clearly discern or reliably exclude with reasonable certainty given the condition of the remains. So essentially, she could have been strangled, as well as the others. There's no way they can tell. And her body had no puncture wounds or anything aside from just minor abrasions and bruising. Exactly. Not to be completely written off, the FBI steps in with a reward to turn to the public for help. On January 17th, 2018. Every day, the FBI works closely with our state, local, and federal partners in law enforcement to ensure the safety and well-being of all our communities. 
But there's another partner, just as important in our investigations, and that's the public. In many cases, the public can be the key to solving an investigation. This morning, the FBI is announcing a reward of up to $30,000 for information to determine the circumstances that led to the deaths of Christina Bennett, Rhonda Jones, and Megan Oxendine. point of investigation where we've conducted the logical investigation we've reached a point where we really need the public step so this is why we've, we've, we've done the logical parts to get us to the point where we fully understand the case as much as we can to this point and now we need the public help. I just don't understand that um, the chief called in the FBI because of your resources and tools to help them with this investigation is there anything in this investigation that links these three deaths to any other deaths in this area or in your jurisdiction uh, we don't have any indication that this that these we don't have we don't know that these deaths are necessarily linked. They have some similarities, but we don't have any indication that they are linked to any other deaths at this point. What are some of those similarities? Uh, well, the location and the and the times when they were lo uh, located. Other than that, we're not uh, at liberty to discuss that at this point. That would not be advantageous to the investigation. Can you say if the women knew each other, like if they were acquaintances? Uh, we're not going to go into that at this, at this point. Isn't there um, a one girl who's still missing, um, Abby? Is Patterson. it Abby Patterson? Is there any indication that her disappearance might be linked to any, any of these deaths? Uh, we don't have anything that would link those to the That was FBI Special Agent John Strong speaking during the press conference. And just to clarify the FBI's actions so far in Lumberton, They've knocked on 800 doors and conducted 500 interviews. But unfortunately, none of that effort's developed any viable leads in the cases so far. We spoke with their public affairs specialist, Shelley Lynch, based in the Charlotte, North Carolina field office via email, but she only referred us to the official press release. The medical examiner's office has reached the point where they are prepared to release and make public their findings as to the examination of the deaths read the court documents filed this past February. And I think we got these in May. It also says, contained within these findings is information relative to controlled substances found during the toxicology analysis, the court document noted. When you really reflect on that statement, it seems to subtly imply, hey, it just could have been an overdose. But we know from further detail that can't be ruled out, but neither can asphyxiation or for that matter, other causes of death. It seems like these three women's deaths are being written off as unworthy of exploring due to their history with drugs. Or that's how I read the quote anyway. They're not even included in the Robinson County official unsolved homicide list due to the cause of death remaining undetermined. If you recall, earlier we talked about Megan's hair being cut. At this point, we feel like we should mention, Rhonda's family actually hasn't been given a clear answer on if her hair was cut as well, and they've asked. This is what Dr. Maurice Godwin had to say about the hair cutting and a potential MO, because we've yet to find one. See, another thing is, is you, you can't rely on MO. 
you know, modus operandi, mm -hmm. you can't rely on that. Because that can change. As I it's dynamic. Yeah. And MO changes over time. Now, you have to look for a signature behavior. And, and uh, is there one behavior that tends to be constant throughout? And Rhonda's family told us uh, a couple months back that they will not get they will not be given a straight answer on if Rhonda's hair was cut as well. So as far as signature goes, I don't know if that points to something that could count. Oh, oh, that's definitely a damn signature. <laughs> Many people would point to the hair signature as the mark of a serial killer, but others have remarked, perhaps accurately, that it could be the action of one vindictive woman against another. In addition to that mystery, there's one more concrete clue about what could be happening, and we'll be discussing theories on it at the end of the next episode. There is some kind of some kind of organization, gang, whatever, that is causing these crimes. Those are not coincidental crimes. It, towns that size don't just explode with crime. There has to be something going on in Lumberton that is causing mm -hmm. these this type of crime. About four to six months of me really just steady picturing my child like that, helpless and me, her mother, and I'm like sad, mad, angry, fed up, you name it. I had so many emotions going on. I called Detective Evans just to touch base to see whether there was anything new. And he told me, he says, well, I heard she stole a bunch of dope from this certain drug dealer, mm -hmm. and that's just what happens. And me, not knowing what, what he's talking about, so you're telling me my child died for a little bit of dope? He said no. This was a large amount of doubt. We haven't ruled out the possibility that they are connected, uh, but we certainly don't know at this point. We're conducting neighborhood canvases and interviews, trying to determine whether they are or are not related. Next time, we're going to cover the disappearances of Abby Patterson and Cynthia Jacobs, as well as community theories. We'll also discuss our efforts so far to make contact with Lumberton law enforcement, as well as local journalists. They haven't had a lot to say, if anything at all, while being very nice. Hopefully soon we can start answering questions like, why was the blanket Kristen was found in disposed of at the request of law enforcement at the medical examiner's office? Was Rhonda's haircut, just like Megan's? And was Rhonda killed for stealing narcotics? And is that linked to the group that also attacked Megan? Is there a common denominator to be found in all of this? A who, what, and why for all the women? We'll be exploring local theories in the next episode that try to find those answers. And while we're on the topic of drugs, narcotics is a sore subject in Robinson County. Due to Operation Tarnished Badge, the Sheriff's Department still hasn't recovered the right to collect drug forfeiture money.
Luckily, Nick and I have been able to gain a fair amount of interaction with locals that want to discuss the cases, and we keep gaining more and more important information through those channels. That's part of what we're going to be discussing as far as the theories go at the end of the next episode. So we just wanted to say thank you to those people for helping us in this endeavor. And if you have any tips, questions, or comments, feel free to reach out to us at darkwaterpod at gmail.com. Or the number we set up, where you can call, text, leave a voicemail, 919-307-9331. That's 919-307-9331. In addition, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Darkwater Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Or visit us at darkwaterpodcast.com. I, Brett, and Nick write, record, and produce Darkwater Podcast on a bi-weekly basis. And original music by Moonside Sound. Sound.